As you know, we've been examining this letter for a little bit. This is week number four in our study on Christ, our joy. Uh, and I say that a little bit facetiously because we're in week number four and we are still in chapter one. Uh, but that's okay. We are plodding along, uh, making our way through this chapter. And, and I, I, I know that it may take a little while, but that's okay. There is a lot in this letter, a lot that Paul has to say in a little amount of time uh, throughout this letter. Uh, That is our theme, the theme for this particular series, and I think also the theme that rises so clearly to the surface in this letter is just that, that Christ is our joy. Uh, This is evident uh, throughout the letter. This is not some new or novel thing. Commentators throughout the ages have noted Paul's candor in this letter as being indicative of an apostle who is coming around uh, these believers in this church. Actually, he's coming not as an apostle, but as a brother, a friend, a dear pastor. And he's commending them to have joy. And this is not a sort of feigned happiness or just put a smile on your face sort of glee as life goes on around you. But decidedly, what you see uh, I think is most clear throughout this letter is that it is the joy that the believer can have in and only in Jesus the Christ. Actually, what I was most astounded by is just the, the prevalence of the name Christ throughout this letter. As we've noted before, it appears over 40 so times throughout these short chapters. And actually about half of those times, half of those references to Christ and or Jesus or both of them combined, uh, half of those appear in the first chapter alone. <laughs> So if you want to get an idea of of what he's stressing, what Paul is emphasizing, it's Christ, the Christ, and the joy that his sons and daughters can have in him and because of him. And I think that is a message that speaks to us most, most dearly. In verses 12 and 26, we've been noting how Paul is somewhat embodying what we've called the joy of Christian thanksgiving. There's this overriding theme of thanks that comes to the fore, especially in these verses as he is here writing and actually he has been talking about his prayers to them. He, notice he says that again in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time he remembers this church, he is thanking God for them. Actually, this is a very evocative word. As we pointed out last week, this word thanks is where we get our word, Eucharist. Which means to be grateful or to express gratitude. But more specifically, as a very active thanksgiving. I think this is this active thanksgiving that Paul talks about is exactly what he's embodying in verses 12 through 26, wherein he is testifying to the fact that his whole entire life is a, quote, Eucharistic life, a life of intense, deep uh, expression of gratitude. Yes, despite what goes on. He's epitomizing really what that means, what it means to live a life of faith, what it means to live a Eucharistic life because of Christ. It's a life of overflowing gratitude for the things done in and by Christ alone. This was Paul's heart. And we've noted and we pointed out that Paul does this in three specific ways. 
three specific ways that in which you and I could be thankful because of Christ. Three specific sort of uh, ways that Paul embodies this sort of joy of Christian thanksgiving. Last week we saw the first one, which was giving thanks despite delays. Uh, we spend a little bit of time in this just because I was so moved by Paul's testimony. In fact, just to, I'm not going to repeat that whole sermon. Uh, I could, I, I kind of want to, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, but Paul's assertion in verse 12 is actually so astounding to me. His testimony here that actually what seems to be a hindrance to the gospel actually is totally opposite of that. Actually, as he says there, everything has fallen out rather unto what? The furtherance of the gospel. It's actually advanced. It's actually progressed. And he says, why? Because he's been preaching in the palace. (laughs) Think of that opportunity. All of the guards that are guarding him, (laughs) they are a captive audience for Paul's message. Think about that. (laughs) The one who is captive actually has a captive audience. And he's preaching the gospel, as he says, with all the more boldness, as he says in, 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 in verse 14, that this has seeped out unto other brothers who have, as he says, they're waxed confident by his chains, by his bonds. They've seen what his testimony is, and they know. They know that this apostle is there on divine assignment So what appeared to be a detriment is actually an opportunity in the hands of God in which his good news is furthered, not hindered, not stopped. I can't help but think of this, as we noted last week, in light of the testimony that Joseph gives at the end of his life where he says, You thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. And here, this is being carried out in St. Paul's life, that he's giving thanks. He's actively living a Eucharistic life, if you will, despite delays, (laughs) despite being in chains. That is the first way. The second way I want to spend a little bit of time on is, uh, secondly... What I want to jump into now, as, as we spent some time there last week, is just giving thanks despite diversions. Giving thanks despite diversions. Because as this gospel is being manifest, as he says, in all of the palace and in all other places, so it's spreading around, even as he's in chains, the good news of, quote, the Christ is being spread around. All of a sudden, as we pointed out in verse 14, a group of preachers begin being inspired to sort of carry the same message along too. And many of the brethren, verse 14 In the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He confesses, though, interestingly, Paul is always a blunt guy. He confesses the fact that these these preachers who are not fearless, but they're also not the most polished either. They're not all these seminarian types that are coming out with all of their Greek perfectly parsed. (laughs) Actually, he says... Some of them don't even, aren't even preaching with the proper motives. Notice, some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and of strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bond. Supposing, almost you could insert our modern parlance, supposing to add insult to injury. But the other of love, 
Knowing that I am set, I am fixed, I am appointed, my whole entire life is a destiny for the defense of the gospel. So there are evidently some in this group who were preaching Christ, not out of a genuine heartfelt belief of and in Christ. They were preaching out of envy, out of strife, out of contention. Which are basically all synonymous words which mean the same thing. That they were preaching Christ to garner fame for themselves. They were seeking to loft themselves up. That's really what those words strife and contention mean. And in fact, interestingly enough, the word contention there in verse 16 actually means... uh, uh, you, You could apply another word which might raise a lot of eyebrows. Electioneering. It's sort of this campaigning for yourself by preaching Christ. If it, that isn't the most oxymoronic thing. They're campaigning for themselves by preaching Christ, Paul is noting. <laughs> They're using my message of Jesus, the Christ, for their own selfish ambitions. For their own selfish gain. Indeed, an accurate picture of this bunch would be a politician on the campaign trail who is making all kinds of crazy statements and promises not out of sincerity, but only to win favor. That's essentially what some of these groups were doing. They were making a lot of bold uh, protestations and proclamations about Jesus, but they weren't doing it genuinely. By contrast, though, Notice he says there was others who are preaching Christ also, as he said, out of goodwill. Verse 17, the other of love. They were genuinely moved by the Holy Spirit, sincerely captured by this gospel. The, the same gospel that had so captivated Paul was now captivating these others who were preaching sincerely and wholeheartedly and heartfeltly this message of Jesus. Carrying his same assignment, which was what, as it says in verse 17, the defense of the gospel. So you have these two contrasting groups. One who is seeking their own attention, seeking their own glory. And the others were delighting to contribute to this sort of mission of the Apostle Paul. Doing so joyously and genuinely. Which actually leads to this really curious verse. Verse 18 is one that is so curious to me. Because he says, what then? What, What does it matter? Basically, he says... Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether they're pretending or whether they're being genuine, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. It's a very fascinating verse to me. Because Paul is appearing to say, on the surface, he says, what does it matter? Jesus is being preached, and so now he's rejoicing. So as it stands... As it stands, Paul appears to be saying that motivation matters less than the message itself. At least that's what it appears like he's saying that, right? It doesn't really matter what the preacher is being motivated by. As long as he's preaching Jesus, it's okay. Whether the messenger is really envious, whether he's contentious, whether he's a little bit self-centered, isn't as important as if he's preaching Christ. And I think there's some merit to that. 
Sometimes I think what this passage really can get at the heart is, have you ever been in those messages? Don't say that you've been at one of them here. But maybe you've been in one of those messages where I, I where you, you start to get a little bit uh, like movie critic mode in terms of how the preacher is preaching. Uh, he's not he's not expositing that right. Oh, he's taking that verse a weird way. Maybe that's just me, and maybe I'm preaching to myself. Because regardless of how I think it should be preached, as long as Christ is preached, we can rejoice. Even if the pastor doesn't do what we want him to do with that particular passage. (laughs) I think there's a little bit of that going on. I think especially too, this verse turns out to me because we see so many preachers in our day falling like flies, if you will, in terms of falling into tragic sins left and right. And we can look back on them and say, look at how dare they preach Jesus. Look at their life. There's a catalog in our day right now of of ex-preachers, if you will, who have had entire ministries derailed and destroyed. And even more than just ministries, lives derailed and destroyed because of their, quote, electioneering, their contention. And yet Paul, what I think, would say there is still reason to rejoice. Precisely because of one thing. Christ is preached. Which doesn't mean that the man or the messenger doesn't matter. But it also means this. That the gospel's grounding element, its mainstay, isn't the morality of the messenger. That's quite an alarming statement. But I think that's what Paul is here saying. That the reason why the gospel is so powerful and so true is not because its messengers are so moral. Or they're so incredibly ethical. Sometimes they're not. And we find that out a way later. Again, that's not a statement to get preachers off the hook. Rather, to me, is to say this, that regardless of the soundness of a preacher's life, the sound doctrine of God is still present and persists. Which to me actually has this meaning, that when a pastor falls, it doesn't mean that the gospel isn't true. There was, I won't say his name just to... uh, won't get in trouble there. But there was a recent pastor who got in the news for another sordid affair. As sadly to say, some pastors get themselves caught up into. Believe it or not, though, this is a pastor that I've had association with. I even recorded a conversation with him several years ago. And it struck me. It, it, it struck me really close to home. This is a pastor who I thought high of. In terms of his doctrine, in terms of his ability to expound truth. And he found himself in a web of lies and deceit, at least if certain news outlets are to be believed. <laughs> and it makes me think maybe he's one of the ones that Paul would hear talk about, who we find out later is preaching Christ out of envy and strife. But that doesn't change what he preached before. There's, I think, a dangerous element 
in our current day. I'm not going to try. I won't. I will try not to get down in a rabbit hole about this. <laughs> but there's a dangerous element in our day in this sort of wave of like cancel culture. Where when someone messes up, we have to try and erase all of what they've ever done. Because how dare they mess up? Just because that person messed up now doesn't change what they preached back then. Because if they preached the Bible, that is still true. I think I, there's several pastors I can relay, uh, I can talk about that. About that. There's that very prominent apologetics minister whose whole entire ministry was blown up in the aftermath of his death. Does that change what he preached seven years ago before we knew that? No, it does not. Christ was still preached. And Paul is saying that's the message we cling to. Regardless of the vessel, we can cling to the message. That's still true. Don't get caught up in all of the distraction of, quote, deconversion and falling and deconstructing my faith. Because what's still true, Christ is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the King, the one who is supreme over all things. And regardless if the messenger five years from now falls into horrendous sins, this message is still true. We can cling to that. To me, that's what Paul is here saying. Despite this diversion of all these people coming out and then we find out later that they're preaching out of envy and strife. Guess what? Jesus is still the Christ. One writer put it this way, that there ought to be a consistency between life and doctrine. Yes, there should be a consistency. Such as why Paul, elsewhere in 1 Timothy, this is not the writer talking. Such as why Paul in 1 Timothy talks about how important it is for preachers especially, but all Christians, to have lives worthy of the gospel. But here, the writer says, there ought to be consistency between life and doctrine. But there is often not. And so the scriptures warn us of this by giving us reason to cling to the gospel beyond the preacher. The message beyond the vehicle by which we have heard it. Which is to say this. Don't believe the gospel because I'm preaching it. Believe it because it's true. And you can read it for yourselves in this word. My voice has nothing to do with the truth of the gospel. It's Jesus' words and the Christ's spirit in us. I am nothing. I, I'm nothing in this equation of truth. It is Jesus Christ alone. Cling to him as your mainstay. He's the one that is holding this all together. To me, I find so much comfort in that. Again, not to get preachers off the hook from their moral failings, but to say when that happens. Because guess what? Preachers are sinners just like you and me. So not if that happens. When that happens for that guy, we can say it's still true. The gospel is still true. And we will speak it and preach it and shout it till the, uh, we're blue in the face. Till Jesus comes. It's not going to change how we preach. I'm going to still be preaching Christ till doomsday, I pray. Because <laughs> I know it's true. I know whom I have believed, as Paul said. I think about this, especially in Paul's day. Think about all the people who 
he was associated with who also fell away. You know, he mentions a lot of those guys, right? Especially in those uh, uh, pastoral epistles. He mentions several names of guys who he was associated with who kind of fell away. Demas and Alexander and Hymenaeus. <laughs> guys that perhaps he ministered with who he found out later they were not who they were posturing themselves to be. Maybe there's going to be some of those people for us in our, in our lives. In fact, if you read certain news outlets, deconversions and desertions from the faith are a dime a dozen. And we can, I think sometimes, maybe this is just me, we can get sort of frustrated by that. You just want to go up to that person and shake them. But it doesn't discount what they have said before. Because this Bible is true. This Bible is what pierces our, our lives and our souls. This is what does it. And yes, you, certain preachers have a bravado. They have a way that they can communicate that, is, that just uh, affects us. We know what's true beyond true. Beyond even the truest communicator is the truth of this word. And it will be true, yes, regardless of how many preachers come and go. You know, I've said before in these Sunday evening services, I don't know why, I tend to get a little bit more personal sometimes. I've had friends come and go in terms of the faith. In our our own lives, me and Allie could probably tell you, maybe perhaps you can think of several in your own lives. And you're, how in the world could they have fallen? And there's part of us that wants to uh, sort of re-envision all that they did. Maybe they were in your church. <laughs> and you sort of recast all that they did as though it was totally false and we shouldn't credit it at all. And Paul is saying, regardless of what they did back then, that was for Christ. And therein we can rejoice. Christ was preached. (laughs) One writer actually writing in the newspaper, The Atlantic, believe it or not. He says it like this, which I thought was so profound. The church, and I think he, he wrote it this way just to, you know, get a little bit of a rise out of people. So it's a little bit provocative. But he says, the church is not the hope of the world. Its purpose is to be a witness to the hope of the world. (laughs) Even if that witness is often imperfect. But those of us of the Christian faith do seem to be overdoing the imperfect part. (laughs) He said that. But I love what he says there. We're not, I'm not the hope of the world. I'm just a guy who gets to talk about the one who is the hope of the world. Jesus, the Christ. This to me is Paul's language here in this chapter especially. I'm not the answer, Paul is saying. But we get to preach about the answer. And as long as you're preaching about the answer, I am going to rejoice, Paul is saying. I therein do rejoice. Why? Because Christ is preached. To me, I think I can cling to these words as pastors come and go, fall away. Brethren in the Lord, as Paul is here saying, when they are falling... 
We can be uplifted because the truth of the crucified Christ transcends all of the fallenness of mankind. (laughs) Thank goodness for that. It transcends even the sins that I don't even know I'm committing. Because God's word is true and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And not because I'm a master swordsman, but because the spirit is moving in his word when it is declared. You know, that's the one thing that is, that is really cool and awesome. And this is not just something that I have found in my short ministerial life. But uh, several pastors I've talked to would say the same thing. That there are certain messages that you get up to and you feel like your outline is the bomb. You get up there and you speak and you're like, man, this message was, this message was, this was excellent. (laughs) And you go out and shake hands and no one says a word. No one says anything about it. And you're like, man, I thought for sure that that message was going to be the one to change the world. And then there's other times where, for whatever reason, you don't feel at peace with the message that you have prepared. Your outline seems a little bit out, uh, sort of unorganized. It's not very well put together. And you preach. <laughs> and you stumbled over your words. And you stuttered at times. And you messed up some references. And you skipped a page of your notes. And those are the messages oftentimes when you're greeted by so many thank yous. And that was a blessing, Pastor. <laughs> To me, it's, that's the most humbling thing because it reminds me that it's not up to my eloquence to do anything. It's all about the Spirit. It's all about the Spirit using this word for His good purposes, not mine. Just another illustration. This is for free. I think I might have told you this before, but maybe not. Um, here's one time I was getting up to preach at my dad's church and at the current time, at that, or at that particular time, I was uh, in the habit of printing out all of my notes. So I had all of them printed. And I w- so uh, I went there. We drove up from Florida that particular weekend. And I was going to preach on a Sunday night. So I go to his computer and I print out all of my notes, or so I thought. And uh, I grab them from the printer, fold them, put them in my Bible, and I'm ready to go. And my dad calls me up to the pulpit and I get up there and I'm about... To preach, and I and I start. And it's going well. I'm preaching from Daniel chapter three and the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the the fiery furnace. And I'm going through my introduction. Blah blah blah. I turn my page from page one to page two, and the rest of my pages are blank. <laughs> pages two through I don't know eight are just white pages. <laughs> And it, it, I don't know, I should probably find the recording because it would be funny. I was stunned. I was a little bit taken off guard. <laughs> taken aback by that. I was not prepared to have that page turn over and not have anything written on it. And so I just proceeded to go forward with it. And you wouldn't you know it that that was one of the most moving times I've ever preached that, that, that particular passage. <laughs> I don't remember what I said because it was all the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit used that message in a really powerful way. Only to say, I, I only say that to say this. That this truth is not true because of me. It's true because of God. 
Because of his spirit and his son who boldly professed this truth and lived this truth in his own body. And yes, even now as it's being declared, it's not true because of me and because I've made sure all my notes are so accurately, uh, pinpointedly uh, put together. It's because of the spirit of God. It's the spirit of Christ. And here, Paul, I think, is saying the same thing. What does it matter? Notwithstanding in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. That's what matters. That's the core of it all. You can be distracted, diverted, to use the word that's up there, by people who seem to cast a pall on the gospel with the way they've lived. And Paul is saying, Christ is preached. Cling to him, not people. They will come and go perhaps, but Christ abides forever. I must hasten, and we're going to spend some time on this next week. Thirdly, giving things despite death. Giving things despite death. Paul so here has been describing and we've been saying embodying this Eucharistic lifestyle, if you will, and he's... Now here brought, I think, to the fullest conclusion of one who is here holding to such a confession. Because if you say that I have Christ as my joy, you, if you're going to be one who is true about that, you have to carry it to its fullest end. Which would be that notwithstanding whatever the next hour might hold, the next day, the next year, regardless, I'm going to carry on magnifying Christ in my body. And guess what? That's exactly what Paul here says. Look at verse 19. For I know... That this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. I know you're going to pray for me. I know it's going to work out to where I'm going to get out of this place and it's going to be rejoicing. And then he says, I don't even know if I want that because for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. (laughs) And then he says, if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I what not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. (laughs) So I have this desire to be with you because I know it's necessary for me to minister to you. But actually, for me personally, I'm okay with dying. Because Christ is my joy, my fullest gain. See, here Paul is making this bold declaration that in nothing will I be ashamed, even if it meant I have to lose my own life for the sake of Jesus Christ. You see, the disgrace of these chains that were clanking on his wrists, or, and that couldn't distract Paul, that couldn't dissuade Paul, nor could the prospect of dying even in this little prison cell, none of that could dissuade Paul from magnifying Christ with his life. In all places, Paul is saying, regardless of what is going on around me, Christ is my joy. Christ is my life. My life of Christian thanksgiving carries on regardless of what goes on because it's not tethered to anything other than the crucified Christ. No person, no place, no position. It's, cru- it's tethered to Jesus. Jesus. 
He was his joy. So regardless for him, regardless of whatever was occurring, he could with all boldness declare, I am thankful. F.B. Meyer, that great commentator, says, When God is real to us, and we receive all things either by his permission or appointment, we can find occasions for joy where other men see unmitigated grief, chinks of blue in the dark sky, and songs in the night. And I think that is very true. That when God is ever present to us in the Son, Christ, we don't have to be scared by death. Even, yes, despite how nerve-wracking that reality can be. Here, Paul is testifying to that. He knew what it held for him. He knew that it was actually, as he says here, to his gain, believe it or not, to his advantage that he should die. But ever Paul the preacher, I love, he feels that ministerial tug on his shoulder to remain in the flesh. This entire testimony, next week I want to spend just a little bit more time meditating on those particular verses, 21 through 26. But this testimony, verses 12 through 26, can only be that which comes from those who find Christ as their life of joy. As Paul is here said, he is giving thanks despite all the delays that come about, when plans are upset, when change happens according to what I would rather have. Despite all the diversions and the distractions, things that can get us bogged down and things that can get us distracted. Despite even the prospect of death, none of that matters because why Christ is going to be magnified. Because you can be sure of that, because I'm going to live for Jesus. But you can be sure of that, that when I die, it is going to be because Christ is getting glory. Christ is not confined by Paul's chains. He's not confined or hindered by Paul's death. God's purposes will always prevail. And this is what stoked Paul's thanksgiving. His Eucharistic life. Christ was his joy, and Christ was supreme. And that is the message that carries on, yes, despite all the things that happen in life. And we too can say the same. If our joy is tethered to the crucified Christ, we too can give thanks despite delays and diversions in the death That life holds. That life seems and appears to announce. Because Christ is our joy. Our truest joy. Our everlasting joy. May he be praised. Let us pray.